Well, turn with me, friends, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read briefly this morning from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter. It's a little more than half of the chapter. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. This will provide us with a little bit of context for our sermon passage, which this morning is Psalm 44. It's the first Lord's Day of the month, so we're taking a break from our sermon series in Acts, and we're going to look at the Psalm of the Month, which this month is Psalm 44. So before we go there, let's look briefly at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. Romans chapter 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us 
from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Beloved, Paul holds out for us the present experience of the Christian in contrast to the coming experience. He sums up the season of life that we find ourselves in in verse 36 with a quote from Psalm 44. For your sake we are killed all the day long and we are as counted as sheep for the slaughter. My friends, this is an apt summary of life on planet earth. A daily dying till at last we are dead. There is such sorrow, such suffering and such shame in these days of our lives which are ever shorter and shorter. And yet Paul sets before us the extraordinary hope that in this daily dying, we are daily coming more and more alive. And we are more and more conformed to the heavenly life that is to come. What is it then for the Apostle Paul that serves as a hinge between the present sorrows of this life and the coming heavenly glory? We find it embedded there in verse 35. We find it embedded there in verse 39. The love of God in Christ. A love that is so intense, that is so all-consuming, that is so complete, that even the sufferings and sorrows of this life should make for us the bedrock and foundation of the glories that are yet to come. That even in dying, we should triumph. With this in mind, Turn back to Psalm 44. Our Psalm of the Month is Psalm 44. Because I have been the installed pastor in this congregation for 44 months. Thank you for putting up with me. Psalm 44. We have these 26 verses this morning and this month to consider. Psalm 44. Here again the word of the Lord. To the chief musician... A contemplation of the sons of Korah. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days and days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies, and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long, and praise your name forever. Selah. But you have cast us off and put us to shame. And you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us up like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the, among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. 
My dishonor is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. Nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and have covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake! Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise! Do not cast us off. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Amen. And amen. Growing up under the shadow of the Schwangunk Mountains, I had some spectacular gym classes. Yes, middle school phys ed. The snow would fall white and fresh in winter, and our gym teacher would bring out the skis and poles and just say, you've got 30 minutes, do laps around the building. And that was our gym class, cross-country skiing around our school building. In spring, the snow would melt and the world would turn to mud. And our gym teacher would hang from the rafters, ropes and rope ladders, nets. He would mount on the wall the pegboards. And he would bring out the bags of chalk, the harnesses, the helmets, and say, you've got 30 minutes, start climbing. And he would teach us to go climbing, as they always did there in the spring on the Schwangunk Cliff. And I remember very vividly discovering that I was terrified of heights. Of course, you don't discover this in the enthusiasm and excitement on the floor of the gym. You discover this 20 feet up when you can't let go. And the voice of the gym teacher came rising up from the floor. Trust your rope. Rule number one in rock climbing is don't die. Rule number two is trust your rope. My friends, in the Christian life, we need someone who regularly comes along and shouts up to us, trust your Christ. Trust Jesus. We need this daily reminder. And at least this month, we have such a coach in the sons of Korah. You see that in italics there at the beginning of the psalm? This is a contemplation of the sons of Korah. It's a masculine in the Hebrew. It's a deep, thoughtful approach to life. And the sons of Korah present it to the chief musician there at the beginning of verse 1. That the choir of Christ there in the temple at the time Levites should sing it. It was not the unique and personal experience of the sons of Korah, but rather it was something that belonged to the church at large that we should all sing together under the Levites. But my friends, we have no Levites. 
Jesus has replaced them all. We have no temple. Jesus has replaced it. Rather, the chief musician that we see embedded at the head of this psalm is Jesus Christ. He is the choir master. We, the congregation of the Lord, are the choir. This psalm comes from the mind of the sons of Korah, but it belongs rightly in the mouth of Jesus Christ. And yes, as we go through it this morning, we will see that the lead singer, the chief musician, the choir master to whom this psalm belongs is Jesus. And we can only sing it in union with him. We sing it rightly only when we sing it in Christ. With this in mind, notice that the sons of Korah begin their contemplation by remembering the stories that their fathers have told them. In verse 1, they say, We have heard with our ears what our fathers told us about your deeds long ago. Specifically in verses 2 and 3, they recall the deeds of God in defeating the Canaanites and giving their land to the people of Israel. They remember that historic moment when Joshua crossed the Jordan and lay waste the armies of their enemies. And they triumphed in the field of battle. And they came to possess houses they did not build. They came to eat and drink from vineyards and farms they had not planted. No, they even here acknowledge in verse 3 that that stunning triumph in the days of Joshua had not come to their fathers through their own might, cunning, and power. Rather, in verse 3, they say, We've learned the lesson of these stories. It was your right hand, your arm, the light of your face, you favored them. They acknowledge the, the moral of the story, that indeed the stories we have heard from our fathers impress upon us this truth. It is God who must save It is God who must redeem. We must depend on the strength and grace of God and not ourselves. Have you heard stories from your fathers? I grew up in a family where my parents told stories. Stories of their life. Stories of their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents. And I think there were other stories than just these, but almost every story included this refrain... We had nothing and God provided. And I grew up with this embedded in my psyche, rooted in my identity. This is who I am. I come from a family that has nothing and God provided everything. Because that story was told again and again and again. Have you heard stories from your parents? My friends, it is the stories of our fathers that forge our identity. It is the stories of our ancestors that bring forth a well-fortified faith in the strength of God. That persuade us of his power and his ability to save and to win the fight. We need these stories. We need stories because they make us who we are. We need to tell them to one another. My friends with gray hair or no hair. Please tell stories. It belongs to the old that they should tell stories. Tell them again and again. I don't care if the young have heard it 12 times. Tell them a 13th. They need it. Tell stories. 
Stories of the works of God and the wonders He has done in your life and in your days. Little children, learn this refrain. It's a very important phrase. You know how your parents teach you to say please and thank you and excuse me? Learn this phrase too. Tell me a story. It even rhymes. It's a little bit of poetry for you. You can manage that, right guys? Say to those with gray hair, say to those with no hair, tell me a story. Let me learn who I am and who my God is. Tell me the story of who I am and what my God has done. My friends, even Jesus did this. Do you remember when he was in the wilderness and he was hungry and he was thirsty and he was longing for comfort He was lonely, and Satan came. At the very height of his weakness, at the very depth of his despair, and Satan came and tempted him three times. And what did Jesus do? He quoted Deuteronomy. You know that book that was given to the people who had walked in the wilderness and been tempted by Satan for 40 years? Just as Jesus walked in the wilderness tempted by Satan for 40 days. Jesus knew his place in the story. He embraced the great story of God that gave him identity, mission, and purpose. My friends, let's hear the story. Let us tell stories to our children. Dear children, learn these stories and tell them to our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. These stories that fortify our faith in God. But secondly, the sons of Korah offer us the contemplation that gives us not only a strong faith based on the stories of our fathers, but gives us an intense dependence on God based on our worship. Notice verses 4 through 8. The sons of Korah cry out, You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. The stories of their fathers have so persuaded them of the complete power of God that they note that it is but a word and God will win. How many kings in the history books that you have read are able to sit on their throne at home and say, we're going to win, and they win? They have to like raise taxes. They have to pay for an army. They have to have a battle strategy. They also have to have God on their side. But not our king. Our king can but command victory, according to verse 4, and victory comes. Our king is of such superlative power That he speaks and it is so. He says, let there be light and there is light. He says, let there be victory and there is victory. In like manner, the sons of Korah notice that through him we push down our enemies and trample on those who rise against us. Not only is it the word of God that gives us victory, it is the name of God that gives us complete triumph and success. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. With God, a toddler tosses his enemy and tramples on his throat. How many of you were thrown to the ground by your toddler? How many of you were stamped on by your toddler? This, this is the visual of God rising up in the midst of his people and granting them victory. They realize in verse 7, That it is God who saves and God who puts to shame our enemies. His power is in them, in him and not in them. And so they confess in verse 6. 
I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. Side by side with a confession of the greatness and goodness of God is the acknowledgement of the insufficiency of the self. It is not in my skill that I will trust. It is not in my strength that I will depend. Now the sons of Korah recognize that if we are to triumph in the field of battle, it must not be with the weapons of this world, but rather with the hope that God gives us in heaven. Notice in verse 8, In God we boast all the day and praise your name forever. They disavow the weapons of this world in order to embrace the worship of God. We make war on this world, not with weapons that they have made, but with praises of God. We win the fight with worship. You know how we love the story of David and Goliath? And so often I've heard it told, Goliath went forth with his big helmet and his big shield and his big spear and his big sword. And what did David have? A sling and a few stones. My friends, do you know that's the wrong comparison? Because David himself, as he advances at God, I'm sorry, advances at Goliath, says of God, I come at you not with spear or sword, but with Does anyone know what it is? It isn't sling and stone. The name of my God. This is our weapon. The name of Jesus Christ. The name He saves. Jesus means He saves. Salvation is in that name. According to Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. In this name we triumph. In this name, we trample our foes. This is what the sons of Korah consider when they look at the world. Oh, those stories of my fathers, which have fortified my faith. Oh, the worship of God, which has brought forth my dependence on God. I need not skill nor strength. I need my Jesus. I need not sword or bow. I need the name of Christ. This psalm sets before us this clear view that we need stories that remind us of the sufficiency of Jesus. We need worship that brings us to the very end of ourselves and to the very fullness of God in Christ. This is what the sons of Korah would have us contemplate. And so Christ also. He would have us embrace this vision of our lives. Christ would have us see that victory is in him and not in us. That success in this life must be found in him and not in us. And my friends, it is only when we have rooted ourselves in the stories of our Jesus and in the worship of our God that we are then prepared for what is about to be unleashed on us. Because now the sons of Korah drag us through the tragedies, the trauma, and the injustices of life. And show us how these sorrows and these sufferings do not undo the promises of God. It is an extraordinary journey you're about to go on as you walk through Psalm 44. Notice the Silah, that pregnant pause. It was kind of awkward, wasn't it? I know that as the guy up front, it was far more awkward for me than it was for you. 
But the psalmist, the sons of Korah, they say, stop. Stop and fortify your faith with the stories of old that you remember clearly. It is God who gets you through. Stop and worship your God so that you remember it is not the weapons of this world nor the might of your arm that's going to overcome. Because, my friends, now, now, like that great roller coaster as the cars start to chug to the top of the hill and you realize it's too late, you can't get off. My friends, the sons of Korah carry us to the very depths of human despair. In verses 9 through 12, the sons of Korah hold out for us the inevitable reality of tragedy. That we shall suffer in this life. They cry out in verse 9, but you have cast us off and put us to shame. You do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy. Those who have taken us have taken spoil for themselves. The sons of Korah compare the present experience with the past glories. Oh, when you went out with our fathers, we crushed those Canaanites. But not anymore. No, in these days, we see defeat. We see despair. We see our God abandon us and cast us off. We have become spoiled. We have become food for the nations. Rather than possessing their land, they have possessed us. Verse 11, we are scattered among the nations. Rather than brought as a community of faith into the land of promise, we are scattered among the nations. You sell us for nothing and are not enriched by the selling. My friends, have you seen these days? These days of sorrow and of suffering? When intense tragedy comes upon the church, when loss and grief stock our halls, when we look about and see the empty pews, and as much as it hurts to see blue tape between you and masks over you, stop and consider the faces and voices you have not seen or heard in this building for far, far too long. Is not life full of tragedy? Shall we speak, my friends, of a ramp project that has taken years too many and thousands of dollars too much? Is not our life full of tragedy? Shall I speak of church plants closed? Years of sorrow and of grief and of labor lost. Shall I speak of loved ones for whom we have prayed and wept and to whom we have preached and loved and shared and they still don't know Jesus? What shall we do with the tragedy of this life? The sons of Korah offer us no cheap answers. The sons of Korah make no apologies for God. But hold out for us this sample, this taste of our union with Christ. For you see, my friends, this is his psalm first. He is the choir master. And when we enter into these sorrows of this life, and when we taste the tremendous tragedies of our days, we begin to experience the reality of Christ's story. We enter into that ancient story of our fathers, that story of Jesus Christ. And we begin to understand why we should boast in him and worship him. Because he reveals to us 
what he has done. Look at these verses again. He has been cast off and put to shame, and God does not go out with him. He has turned back before his enemies, and they take his clothes and they divide it for spoil. This is Christ of whom we sing. These words speak of Jesus. He is sheep for the food of his enemies. He was scattered among the nations. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. And it could not be brought into the treasury of the Lord because it was blood money. This is Jesus of whom we sing. The tragedy that is first and foremost in the minds of the sons of Korah as they contemplate the tragedies of this life is the tragedy of Jesus Christ crucified. And my friends... This is how Christians must contemplate tragedy. When you suffer and suffer you shall, see Jesus. See the tragedy of his life, the sorrows and suffering that he so willingly bore. When you suffer these tragedies, my friends, lift up your eyes and see that you are but tasting the tragedy that he himself willingly underwent for you. But these tragedies so often transform into trauma. This suffering so often becomes shame for us. Notice verses 13 through 16. The neighbors, the nations, and the peoples. That is everyone who's around. Everyone who can watch and who can see They reproach. They say, aha, you have done wrong and you are caught in your hypocrisy. They scorn. Who is this that thought he was so special? Who is this that thought they were so wonderful? They deride. They mock and they ridicule. We've become a byword. Christian. Born in the early church as a curse and a mocking is slowly returning to that same status. They shake their heads at us, and dishonor and shame is ever before us. The voice of the reproach and the revile rise up around us, the enemy and the avenger. These, the aloof and the indifferent, cold in their distance, delight in how they can deride us and mock us. As the church of Jesus Christ suffers the intense shame. Shall we speak, my friends, of the hypocrisy of which we, a church, are truly guilty? Shall we speak of what the media says of us? Of what is said of us in social media and in print? Shall we speak of the dishonor that rests on our noses like glasses, shading continually our sight of everything. Do you know what it is like, my friends, to feel that veil of shame descend over your face and everywhere you look, all you see is disgrace and failure. If you come face to face with such an intense tragedy that it seems to be masking and shading everything else you see, And somehow the sun is just a little more gray and the sky just a little more dark. 
It was once observed in John MacArthur's church that he didn't tell as many jokes or funny stories in the pulpit as he used to. He was asked why. After a pause, he said, accumulated sorrow. Life just got harder. And the shame and the dishonor rested before the face. But my friends, what do we make of this? What do we do when the church is worthy of disgrace? What do we do when we are not merely those who suffer tragedy, but we are the perpetrators of it? What do we do when the trauma works within us and around us and all the nations say of us, we're better off without a church in town? We're better off without the Christians. Oh, friends, we see again our union with Christ. We see again the reality of what Jesus underwent for these words speak of Jesus. Can you see him? He's there on the cross. And who is around him? His friends, his mother, his family, his neighbors, strangers, Roman soldiers. They are taking his clothing for spoil. They are consuming his flesh with rage. And he is alone and naked and ashamed. Do you remember when he was in the house of Caiaphas and Annas? That first fake trial during the night? They bound his eyes so that he could not see. They spit in his face and punched him. And they said to him, prophesy, you prophet who hit you. They mocked and derided him. Do you remember when he was in the palace of Pilate? And the Roman soldiers robed him in purple and twisted thorns into his forehead and spit on him and punched him. They took a fake scepter and pretended to bow before him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. He was paraded through the streets, covered in blood, oozing with wounds carrying his own cross. Till at last there was such weakness at work in his flesh that he could not even carry his own wood and someone else had to do it for him. And there he hangs between heaven and earth, naked and ashamed. Abandoned by his father, abused by his neighbors, forsaken by his friends. Jesus knows trauma. Jesus is sympathetic to the shame of this life and to the sorrows that worm its way into our hearts and fill us with grief. My friends, what do we do in these awful hours of our life? We look up and we see Jesus. We see our likeness to Christ, our union with Christ, the kindness of Christ to come and to be willing to do this for us. To go through tragedy and trauma, not as the inevitable reality of a fallen state, but as a willing sacrifice for sin for you and me. But thirdly, the sons of Korah take us through the injustices of this life. 
In verses 17 through 22, they reflect on the reality of their innocence. All this has come upon us. The defeat at the hands of our enemies. The shame and disgrace from all our neighbors and friends. God has abandoned us. And those around us have abused us. All this has come upon us. But we did not forget you. We did not deal falsely with your covenant. Our heart did not turn back and our steps did not depart. In these four little parallels, the sons of Korah contrast their loyalty to God and their obedience to his law. We have not forgotten you. You are our one true God. Our heart has not turned back. We have a loyal love. You are our God and there is no other. Secondly, we have not dealt falsely with your covenant, nor have our steps departed from your way. We've obeyed you. We've done what you've wanted. We've been loyal. We've been loving. We've been faithful. And yet in spite of our innocence, in spite of our righteousness, verse 19, you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Though loyal, Though obedient, you have brought us to the house of hyenas. And you have set us into the jaws of jackals. You have brought us to the place of breaking and to the place of death. You have shrouded us in the grave. The doom that has befallen the church. They confess in verse 20 and 21, this would be deserved had they gone after false gods. No, we understand, say the sons of Korah, if we stretched out our hands to foreign gods or forgot the name of our God, he would know this. He would call us to account. He would correct us. He would rebuke us. But indeed, they conclude in verse 22, it is not for their sin that they suffer. And it is not because of their sin that they are ashamed. It is because of his sake. It is for God's sake they suffer shame. It is for God's sake they are daily dying. It is for God's sake they are reckoned as those who deserve to die and are lined up for the slaughter. It is for His sake. We who have memorized that shorter catechism, who confess, what is my purpose? Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Then, my friends, why do we suffer tragedy? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why do we undergo trauma and shame? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why do we bear the burdens of injustice? Why is life unfair? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why this is hard stuff. And yet, we see clearly, Christ is the chief musician. These are his words in a way that we could have never understood. Yes, my friends, we suffer tragedies we do not deserve. We suffer trauma that is not right or fitting. The world is wrong. And yet, In a totally unique way. Jesus above and beyond everyone else endured injustice. 
that cannot be compared. Indeed, he who was sinless became sin, that we might become righteous, that we might be the righteousness of God. He who never forsake his father, he who embraced and stirred up in his heart those stories of old and came to fulfill them, who said, all those stories of my fathers, those are my stories. They speak of me. Who came and said, let us worship. Who went into the garden and said, not my will, your will be done. Who willingly walked into the shadow of death and in the place of jackals. Who willingly gave up his life when no one took it from him. He who is the sheep of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 44. He who is the Lamb of God slaughtered for our sin. This is Jesus of whom we sing and this is Jesus who is singing. He is the one in innocence and in horrific injustice bore the trauma and tragedy of our lives on our behalf that we might have this morning, verses 23 through 26, that we might have this hope. The sons of Korah end with an incredible vision of Christ. Awake. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise. Do not cast us off. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? In these two verses, the sons of Korah request four things from God. First, that he awake. They metaphorically compare his apparent absence and indifference to sleeping. But we know from Psalm 121 that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. And so it is merely their experience, their sensation. When we pass through tragedy, trauma, and injustice, we feel like God is asleep at the wheel. And they legitimately allow us to pray, Father, are you asleep? It is not disrespectful to worry and to wonder, Oh God, are you really there? Do you really care? I mean, can you picture it? Jesus in the front of a boat, tossed by the waves in the wind, professional, lifelong fishermen, hopeless, helpless, despairing, doomed to drown, racing to the front and crying out, Awake! Do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus arises. Hush! Be still. My friends, what do we need in the middle of a storm such as the tragedy and trauma and injustice of this life? We need a story where there's a Savior who stands up and says, be still. Be hushed. They ask him to arise and to not cast them off forever. In this arising, they are envisioning that not only standing up, but coming forward. Do not cast us off. That has come to us. Stand up and hasten to our side. Reach out to us. Come to us. Can you see this in Christ? As Stephen in Acts is being pelted with stones as the rocks ricochet off his flesh and crush his bones, as his blood spills into the pile of rubble 
and he collapses into the dirt, he looks up and says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. My friends, why is he standing? When the book of Hebrews says that he is seated at the right hand of God, why is he standing? Because when his saints come home, Jesus arises. Because Jesus stands up to receive his saints. Thirdly, they ask him to no longer hide his face. Look at us. Open up those eyes. Take the hands away. No more heavenly peekaboo. No, look at us. See our sorrows. See our shame. See the injustice. See the grief and the agony within us. Look upon us and see us. Can you see this in Jesus? God was so interested in seeing your sorrow that he took your flesh and your blood to walk on your earth to taste your sins and sorrows for you. He has not hidden his face. He has taken flesh that he might have a face like yours and see with his own eyes the sorrows and sins of this life. They ask him fourthly to remember affliction and oppression. Oh, dear friends, he remembers. He is not a God who forgets. He is a God who acts. But notice well that throughout the scriptures, when we speak of God remembering, we speak of God remembering in his time and in his way. Notice in verse 25 that before he remembers, their soul must be bowed down into the dust and the body must cling to the ground. There is a death to be endured. There is a grave to be entered. And yet, what do we find on the other side of this verse? Verse 26, arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. The truth of our experience is that the traumas of this life will heap up together until at last they will take us and we will die. The truth of this world is that the tragedies of this life will pile one upon another until they have buried us in the earth and we will die. The injustices of this world will rise against us, seize us, and slay us, and we will die. My friends, this is one thing of which I can be completely confident as a preacher. Everyone who hears me will die. For this, we must deal. This, we must address. What is the answer to all the tragedies, traumas, and injustices of life? What is the great story that will make right all these wrongs? What is the great worship that will bring us to see clearly this mess that we are walking through? Notice the final words of the sons of Korah. For your mercy's sake. It's the same hinge we found in Romans 8. It is the love of God in Christ. How marvelous the wisdom of God. Stop with the sons of Korah and contemplate. Why must you walk through such tragedy? Because then you can see the love of God in Christ. Why must you walk through such trauma? Because then you can see the love of God in Christ. My friends, he reveals himself to us 
a consolation and a comfort in all this life's misery. In this misery, we see clearly his mercy. Is it not marvelous that the shape of our shame, the cross of Christ, should be the instrument of our salvation? Is it not wonderful that the empty grave should stand forever as a break between the old world and the new? For the sons of Korah sang this psalm in eager anticipation of Christ. But you, my friends, in just a few minutes will sing it in the reality of Jesus Christ because he is alive. My friends, Jesus is alive. Suffer with him in sight. This is the gospel truth for you this morning. Your Jesus is alive. Suffer with him in sight. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful day. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful gospel. This beautiful psalm. That by the wisdom of your word and your spirit, we might discover the depths to which we must descend to be the disciples of Jesus. And that we might also then, with heavenly hope, ascend with Christ and know and see there in his face the unshakable love of you, our Father. We give you thanks that there is an anchor within the veil that there is indeed the thing to which we may trust and commit all our cares, you, our Father. And indeed, our precious Savior, our brother who has loved us, who has bought us with blood, who has laid down his life for us, who is redeeming our every tragedy, who is making right our every wrong, who is in his resurrection begun to rewrite all the stories of our fathers and our children, that they might all bring forth the praises of God. We give you thanks for this wonderful hope and pray that you would embed it deep in our hearts. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.